Upon landing in Spain in the 8th century, the Arabic military commander, Tariq, was vastly outnumbered. Realizing this, he did something counterintuitive, ordering his troops to burn their boats, an act that would incinerate their only insurance policy. Gathering his men, he told them, Behind you is the sea, before you is the enemy. You are vastly outnumbered. All you have is sword and courage. There was no other option left but to throw everything into the fight. The Chinese sage of strategy, Sun Tzu, also advocated for the burning the boats to establish what he called death ground. This is the desperate place where you either fight or die. Burning the boats is the ultimate motivational tool. With the boats burned, there can be no observers, no divided loyalties. There are no critics on death ground. There are only two choices, do or die. The strategy of burning the boats is ultimately a human one, a way of squeezing the maximum motivation out of humans. Our current cultural moment has placed us on a kind of death ground. Our boats have been burned. Yet, as followers of Jesus, we seem intent on rebuilding them. In our story today, a group of people are forced to come to a conclusion about how they will respond to the death ground on which they stood. See, God was on the move. Jesus and his disciples came again to Jerusalem, referring to Jesus coming from his stay in Bethany to the great city and to the temple. Jesus had been in the area with his disciples. Remember last week, and if you missed it, go back and watch it, where we looked at Jesus' entry into this city. And as Jesus encounters people in this story, Jesus asked a question by the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. This group was a cohort from the larger group of what's called Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, a buffer organization between Rome and the Jewish nation, was composed of 71 members who held near complete freedom in religious matters and restricted power in political matters. In the city, they were the group who determined the type of activities for daily life for the Jewish people. And so they approach Jesus, and they ask Jesus two questions that mention these things. Meaning, Jesus overturning the tables and what he had been speaking to the crowds wasn't just a momentary lapse in judgment by Jesus. Jesus was realigning the people of God for the purposes of God. And the Sanhedrin were seeing a direct correlation between what Jesus was saying and doing and the larger claim that he was making through his sayings and doings. The question that they ask, by what authority, indicates that for the Sanhedrin, the issue is not simply what Jesus did, but his right to do it. Now, the second question acknowledges that no one possessed authority on his own to do what Jesus does in this incident. Such authority presumably could derive only from God. And yet for Jesus to attribute his authority to God could lead to the charge of blasphemy. 
authority is what undergirds Mark's account of Jesus' life. The Sanhedrin perceived that Jesus is speaking and acting in place of God, having authority that comes from God alone. There was a State Farm Super Bowl commercial about stand-ins. This commercial featured Patrick Mahomes, Aaron Rodgers, and Jake from State Farm. They do this bit about how the stand-ins don't actually look like the original actor. And eventually, the rapper Drake, the stand-in for Jake from State Farm, attempts to uh, step up and stay this famous standard State Farm line. And when Jake cuts off Drake, he says, stand-ins don't have lines. Jesus isn't some stand-in for God that looks nothing like him. When you have seen the beauty of God, you see Jesus. When you see the beauty of Jesus, you see the Father. And you feel the weightiness of God's majesty in your soul when you encounter Jesus. And sin's power over you will be broken as you explore who Jesus is. And what Jesus does and what we see as we engage him is that the power that enslaves us being sin challenges us to recognize ultimately who is in control, who has the authority over our life. And when we begin to understand that Jesus has authority over our life, we feel the power of him, who he is and what he is like. See, when we see the weightiness of God's majesty in our soul, sin's power over us will be broken. And Jesus actually creates confrontation with a culture within us before he commissions us to work to build a culture around him. To do this, Jesus responds to their question with a, with a question. And he asks, was John's baptism from heaven or of human origin? This question required the Sanhedrin to make a judgment that lay beyond their control. What Jesus now asks of them cannot be answered from their power based on the Torah, the temple, or of Roman authority. Thus, the question of Jesus implies that he stands not under the law of the Sanhedrin, but over it. His counter question is evidence of the very authority about which he is questioned. He challenges them to wrestle with where their authority ultimately comes from. And you may be wondering, why didn't Jesus just answer their question? It seems either irrelevant or evasive. Is he introducing a red herring into the conversation to lead them astray, to avoid the question? The answer is no. The counter question contains the seeds of truth for the Sanhedrin's that they hope to learn. For it was at the baptism by John where the heavens were parted and the Spirit descended into Jesus and the voice from heaven declared Jesus to be God's Son. The baptism of Jesus by John, in other words, was the event that announced his authority and his conscious oneness with the Father and the empowerment for his ministry. If the Sanhedrin wants to know at what point Jesus received the authority to do these things, they must reconsider John's baptism. A decision about John 
is a decision about Jesus. And we get a little insight into their group and how they will respond to Jesus. And Mark chronicles this for us. A decision for John will appear to support the cause of Jesus, whereas a decision against John will alienate the crowds from them, from whom John was, uh, he, he, he had much popularity and was regarded as a prophet. If John's baptism were solely from men, that is fully explainable by empirical science, that they could prove it, they could, they could trace and connect all the dots, then the Sanhedrin may be justified in its accusation of Jesus. But, if John's baptism was from heaven, that is, divinely inspired, as the crowds believed, and as the Sanhedrin evidently feared, then Jesus' authority exceeds mere human authority and must be explained by the authority of God. And so they respond to Jesus. We don't know. And that, of course, is not entirely true. Those who cannot be honest with themselves cannot be honest about Jesus. The Sanhedrin opt to keep their distance by keeping an open mind or withholding judgment. In reality, it shuffles their perspective among the options of skepticism, unbelief, and cowardice. They certainly have some idea about John and thus Jesus. They might even learn something if they enter into an honest dialogue with Jesus. In reality, they are unwilling to know about him. The judgment of the Sanhedrin is clouded by fear of popular opinion. Should they make a decision about Jesus, either positively or negatively, it would cause them to change how they saw themselves. What prevented them from realignment was the approval of others, also known in the Bible as the fear of man. Ed Welch, in his book, One People are big, and God is small. He says, fear of man has many symptoms. Susceptibility to peer pressure, needing something from a spouse, a concern with self-esteem, being overcommitted because we can't say no, fear of being exposed, small lies to make ourselves look good, people making us jealous, angry, depressed, or anxious, Avoiding people, comparing ourselves with others, and even fear of sharing our faith. Our culture tries to overcome this problem, this fear of man, by finding ways to bolster self-esteem. But this actually compounds the problem. We become dependent on whatever or whoever will boost our self-esteem. In reality, low self-esteem is thwarted pride. We don't have the status we think we deserve. So we elevate desires that are often good in themselves to the level of needs without which we think we cannot be whole. We'll never experience the renewal we so desperately want for ourselves and our world when we live for the approval of others. Remember, these are the religious leaders they weren't living for the approval of the Romans. They were, the approval of the Jewish people consumed them. 
Their power needed to be maintained. Their boats were the religious patterns of false security. Followers of Jesus, God allows cultural crisis to drive us back to him, not back to our boats. Let's stop trying to rebuild our Christian boats. May we surrender to the authority of Jesus who reshapes a remnant when they look to him. The Jewish leaders were looking around before they were looking to God. This habit this tendency to look around before we look up doesn't just speak to those who are religious or to those who are Christian. A worldview that looks around before it looks up leaves us with a hopeless subjectivity concerning good and evil that is wholly dependent on social constructs. Whatever a culture deems right is right and whatever a culture deems wrong is wrong. We feel this today. How do we feel this? You see it in conversations when we preface, when we couch terms, when we introduce red herrings into the arguments and conversations we have because we really don't want to deal with the issue. Ultimately, we try to rebuild our boats. We base what's good and bad via the subjective notions we create in our minds even when we don't realize the implications of our ideas. We inescapably come to one conclusion. Whatever seems right to me or feels right to me is right about me. And we can never account for all the unintended consequences resulting from a limited perspective, a limited authority. Jesus wants their attention. Jesus wants their affection. He wants them to look at him and to look within and then look around. And sometimes we appear to look to God when, we, when what we want isn't a relationship. Instead, we think Jesus owes us an explanation. And the Sanhedrin find themselves in this situation. Jesus, give us an explanation. We deserve this. We do it sometimes through the way in which we live our life, but Jesus has given us an explanation through the way in which he has lived his life. He moves towards people. He loves people. He creates communities of people who are dependent on the redemptive story God was writing rather than the man-made methods or motivations. Jesus' response back to the Sanhedrin discerns their motives. He challenges them to revisit their preconceived notions, their, their perceived places in the world, in light of Jesus. I think about a three-legged race. The way in which you win is not by standing on the sideline, making a fun of people, but by entering the race with Jesus and learning how to swing the two tied legs together. And it's a lifelong race. We run the race best when we follow the cadence of Jesus in that race. When we start to take control and trip and fall. We see that we've misstepped. And Jesus, though, smiles. He looks over at us and says, I'm still right here. I'm not angry. I'm with you. Can you picture God's smile? One that says, you are loved. We've got this together. I'm in your corner. Let's go again. The Sanhedrin were more concerned with managing the race and trying to set the finish line so much so that they were unwilling to experience the race with God. Looking to God is liberating, it's freeing. 
And the spirit we receive when we place our faith in Jesus confirms the approval that we have, the approval that we need. And when we take people's expectations seriously, we can take people's expectations seriously because we want to love them as God commanded. But we are not enslaved by them. We're not beholden to them. We don't serve them for what they can give us in return, approval, affection, security, or whatever. But we go on a journey with Jesus, learning to be satisfied in Him. And when we learn to be satisfied with Jesus, we will experience freedom and be able to enjoy everything else. Being fulfilled in Christ means that we don't longer have to depend on the other things in life for happiness, which means we can truly enjoy them because we are no longer enslaved to them. And the prospect of losing them doesn't terrorize us. The Western life system has formed us in a particular way that creates people who resist the move of God in subconscious ways. The average Westerner is a radical individualist who is deeply afraid of compromising their autonomy. He or she determines their self-worth and identity primarily horizontally via the media, culture, or the press. They're they're looking around first. And we are shaped by the passive-aggressive tone of consumerism. Where we want is maximum say with minimum responsibility. We're shaped primarily by our fluid and ever-shifting feelings. We yearn for community and connection, yet fear, commitment, and consistency. We wish for justice while desiring hedonistic payoffs. We religiously point the finger at others while jealously guarding our own right to do so as we please. All these factors place us in a spiritually precarious place. The great irony is that you really can only be able to enjoy the things of life. You can really begin to work for justice in the world when we don't depend on them for our identity, but instead recognize that every authority that we have in the world is a derived authority from Jesus. C.S. Lewis said it like this, in life there are first things, God, and second things, everything else. If you put first things first, you also get second things. If you put second things first, you'll not only lose first things, but you'll lose second things too. When you are satisfied with God's presence and approval in your life, you will no longer obsess about what everyone thinks about you or what everyone else thinks about the world. We can quit hiding behind issues and bring our true selves to Jesus. See, he has already moved towards us. He was moving towards the Sanhedrin. He was moving towards them. We don't have to face the heavy task of defining ourselves, of crafting our own identity. Instead, Jesus will do that when we fully give ourselves over to him. And as a church, we must continue to display this good news. That it's from Jesus that we are able to have an identity. That that God says that you are loved, you are approved of, that you can't earn my love. You You can't work your way into my family. I have adopted you in freely and graciously. And I have the authority, the authorship to write that out. We don't have to be beholden to the 
to the world, to, to those around us, but, in f- but first and foremost, we can look to God and we can look within. And then we can move out into the world. Up, in, and out. As a church, we must continue to display this good news. We must continue to connect to Jesus, to return and remember that our identity comes from God and about who He says we are and what that means for how we are changing in this world. And He calls us love, but He also challenges us to identify the areas in which in our own life where we have not surrendered to Him. And then as we do this, we can be obedient to His will and to His way within the world. On the seeming death ground on which we stand, a way has been paved by the presence of Jesus. One that doesn't say do or die. It says Jesus did and he died so that we might live. Therefore, we are contenders, not consumers, by realigning the story of our life by the author of life. If you actually head over to our website and begin to scroll down, you begin to see three headings. Explore, engage, and extend. See, there is place for you in Generation Church, no matter where you're at on your spiritual journey. And we invite you to the place where even the Sanhedrin were invited to start. To begin to explore what it looks like to live under the authority of Jesus. And to go from just simple exploration to engagement, participation in his church and with him, and then to extend it to others. And if we begin to do this faithfully as a church, explore, engage, and extend, then we will begin to embody Jesus in every aspect of our life, and his family will be expanded. The freedom and the renewal that we so desperately want to see in our world, we will begin to see right here in our community first. We'll see it in groups of people in and around Generations Church and then in our community at large. This is who Generations Church is. People who go on a journey to explore, to engage, to extend, ultimately together embody the presence of Jesus in our world. And we see more and more people explore, engage, and extend, thus embody the way of Jesus. And Jesus' family, our family at Generations Church, will be expanded. See, that's who Generations Church is. We aren't a service. We aren't a program. We aren't a business. We are a community of everyday people who are committed to expanding God's family together because of Jesus for generations to come. And when we do this, the wake of loneliness, paralysis, tribalism, fear, and anxiety that our world faces will be met with people who don't fuel the fire, but instead passionately pursue Jesus, live under His authority, and begin to make a difference in the world. When we do this, the wake of loneliness, paralysis, tribalism, fear, and anxiety that our world faces will be met with people who don't fuel this fire, but instead 
quench the desire for meeting that people's soul so desperately desires. So we at Generation Church, this is who we are. And if you are watching this, if you are participating in a gathering wherever you find yourself today, we invite you to live under the authority of Jesus. Maybe it's at the step of exploration. Maybe you need to take that step of engagement. Maybe for the first time ever, you go from exploration to engagement or you go from engagement to extending it to someone else. We believe that these three steps will help you depend on Jesus in a way that you may have never before. Because ultimately, it's His authority and it's His power. It's His approval that satisfies our longing soul. Let's be a people, church, that wherever we live, work, and play, help people explore who Jesus is, engage with him and his church, and extend that hope to others. May we not sit on the sidelines and say, we're not sure, but people who say, we follow Jesus.